I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. Happy New Year, everyone. We're really happy to be with you in 2024. We've been spending some time thinking back on 2023, which was certainly an eventful year. We had Chinese spy balloons, Trump's not one, not two, but four indictments. We had the coronation of a king in Charles, the debut of Ozempic, the fall of Sam Bankman-Fried, the George Santos scandal, and now George Santos is on Cameo, the ousting of Kevin McCarthy, the submarine explosion, which I can't believe was this year, the deadliest U.S. wildfires in over 100 years, oh, and of course, two major wars in Gaza and in Ukraine. But it wasn't all terrible. At least we had Barbenheimer. We had Dolly Parton dressed as a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. We had ChatGPT, although jury's still out on if this is a net positive or if AI is here to end us all. And speaking of jury, we have Jury Duty, or at least we had it, which I think was the best show of the entire year. So that was 2023. Maybe you have your own highlights and your own lowlights. The question now is what 2024? An election year with a candidate who has actually been banned from the ballot in two states. What it will bring. And as crazy as 2023 seemed, could it actually, in retrospect, seem like the calm before the storm? To answer those questions and more, I'm here today with the one and only Oliver Weissman. Ollie, welcome to Honestly. Excited to be here, Barry. For those of you who don't already know Ollie's name, he is a writer and editor at the Free Press. And I'm imagining you've seen him pop up in your inboxes a lot more lately, rounding up the news in our daily digest. Ollie, thanks for being bold enough to make some 2024 predictions with me. I'm excited to do it, Barry. I'm also a little nervous to listen back to this in a year's time and, and see how much we got wrong. <laughs> we're going to get most things wrong because most predictions are typically wrong. Okay, but here's how it's going to work because we're talking to some people that are smarter than both of us. We have called up our favorite experts and friends to better understand what we can expect in this tumultuous year ahead. We're trying to hit every bucket from the economy to world wars to culture and even fashion. We've got Leandra Medina on fashion, Susie Weiss on culture, Tyler Cowan on the economy, John McCorder on language, Frank Luntz and Nate Silver on 2024, Peter Atia on health, and Neil Ferguson on the geopolitical, I don't know what else to call it, shit show. Well, Barry, that's, you know, big names for his potentially historic year, so I'm excited to dive into it. But before we do, what's top of your mind going into 2024? What am I thinking about? World War, Ollie. I mean, I'm looking at Ukraine. I'm looking at Gaza. I'm looking at signs coming out of China. And a lot of serious people that I look to for wisdom are shaking at the knees when they're thinking about the year ahead. What about you? Well, I guess I'm worried about World War Three, too, Barry. But, you know, the domestic situation here in the U.S. is also troubling and not because of one given person who may or may not be president by the end of the year. Um, <laughs> but just the fact that everyone involved in the process seems so determined to act in bad faith, to disappoint us, and to kind of say they want to lower the temperature, but then do things that, that make things worse and that raise the temperature. And so while I'm generally, you know, skeptical of kind of alarmist rhetoric about democracy and all of that, it does seem like there's a massive shitstorm coming. And, you know, exactly who will step up, do the right thing, behave well, is not an easy question to answer. So, yeah, we're both in a great mood here at the start of January. <laughs> so World War for me, potential civil war for you. With that, 
Ollie, let's ring up our first expert on a topic near and dear to just about everyone at the start of a new year. Peter Atia, welcome to Honestly. Hey, great to be here. Hi, Barry. Hi, Ollie. Okay, Peter. So I think the first question in the minds of most of our listeners is, it's the start of the year. People are trying to get healthy. So give us the kind of cliff notes, three things they can do to get healthier in 2024. At, at an individual level, it's obviously difficult to answer that question because you got to know something about a person before you could give the right answer to an individual. But I would say the following. It would be hard-pressed to find a long list of people whose lives wouldn't be materially better if they found more ways to exercise. So I think rule number one would be, could a person commit to being more active? I think a second thing that might seem a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but I think does tie into health, especially as we go into this year where, let's be honest, everybody is gonna be sucked into the vortex of world news and world affair and politics and things like that, is being more disciplined about taking a vacation from media, social media, electronics, and substituting that in with time outdoors. So. I know that for me personally, and I know that for my patients, no one is immune to the negative psychological forces of that awful vortex. And you just can't really consume. And I know that you guys have to do this for a living. So I'm, I'm asking you to do something that is away from your job. But the more that when you're not working or not not by necessity having to be sucked into that stuff. The more you can be away from it, the better. And again, there's no better substitution than time outside away from that. And I would say a third thing might be to just think twice before you have the drink. Ask yourself the question, if I'm only gonna allow myself to have three or four of these a week, is this one really worth it? So all three would be radical changes to my own lifestyle exercise, going outside, and three or four drinks a week as opposed to a night. Okay, I got it. Um, (laughs) Peter, let's talk about some of the health trends that were all over social media in 2023 and tell us if we should ditch them or bring them into 2024 with us. Okay, I'll start. Red light therapy. Red light therapy probably does have benefit for the health of your skin. I think all of the other claims seem to be lacking in any scientific merit. So that, you know, somehow red light beds are the elixir of life in other regards. The data just aren't there. Okay, how about reverse osmosis water filters? Yeah, I actually think this one's pretty important. And again, if, if you can afford to put a reverse osmosis water filter in your home, provided you hit the right specification, I think it's probably the best thing we can do to reduce PFAS, which is basically the plastics that, you know, these small plastic molecules that end up in water. So there's been a lot of hype about the negative health consequences of PFASs. And again, it's hard to really draw a cause and effect because that's the nature of epidemiology. But I do think there's enough smoke there that we should at least be mindful of not going out of our way to consume them. And the two easiest ways to avoid PFASs in high quantities are to avoid drinking water out of plastic bottles and to have a reverse osmosis filter. How about air purifiers? Uh, Again, I think it depends heavily on where you are. So there is no question that air pollution is a real problem. And if you look at something called PM 2.5, so particulate matter that is sub 2.5 micron, that is a small enough size that it can get right into the most distal part 
of your lungs and actually get incorporated into your circulation. I think there is actually sufficient evidence that high exposure to PM2.5s is indeed associated with an increase in all-cause mortality. And I think there are lots of mechanistic reasons that, that that might be believable. Luckily, there are plenty of sites, free you know websites you can just go to, where on any given day, you can look up the PM2.5 concentration, and you can at least use that information if you live in a high concentration area to maybe think twice about when you exercise outdoors or not. But you can still use filters indoors if you live in a high concentration area to potentially reduce that. Okay, a big one, pizza in 2023, which is saunas and cold plunges. Yeah, I mean, again, I think everything is about order of operations. So when I hear people pontificate about their sauna cold plunge regimens down to minute detail, and yet they don't do any exercise and they're drinking, you know, five drinks a night and they're sleeping five hours a night, I sort of think, well, you're majoring in the minor and minoring in the major. So assuming your house is in order with respect to other dimensions of your health, I think that sauna in particular probably has real health benefits. Meaning there's there's a clear association, but I think that association has causality behind it. And therefore I think sauna matters, you know, provided again, you have the time and the resources provided you adhere to at least what the data suggests is most appropriate in, in terms of how you do it, which is, you know, at least four sessions a week, at least 20 minutes a session, at least 180 degrees Fahrenheit per session. As far as cold plunge, again, I think that cold plunge don't really have any proven data on quote unquote longevity the way that saunas do. But I think the data on reducing inflammation and probably enhancing mood are real enough that at least for me, it's something I choose to spend time on. Okay. How about avoiding seed oil, which was a huge trend in 2023 and somehow became coded as right wing. First of all, is it right wing? And second of all, should we avoid seed oil in 2024? (laughs) I have no idea if it's right wing, left wing, or straight up the middle. Um, This is actually a topic that I probably will end up doing a podcast in 2024 on because it's just too big to avoid. But I could give you the TLDR. The TLDR is as follows. The epidemiology suggests that there's a clear association with seed oils and bad health outcomes. But that epidemiology, of course, is heavily confounded by the fact that seed oils end up showing up in crappy foods. So how do you disentangle that? Well, I think there's only you know two ways to do it. One is these very mechanistic studies, which some of them do actually suggest harm. However, the big you know caveat to all of this is when you look at the large human clinical trials of polyunsaturated fats, which are what seed oils are, there does not appear to be any negative health outcomes associated with them. This is a very important point to establish, right? Which is the human clinical trials do not suggest that seed oils are harmful. In fact, they suggest that they're probably slightly less harmful than saturated fats, though not as healthy as uh, monounsaturated fats. So your olive oils and things like that. So I would say it's a bit of a stalemate depending on whether you choose to look at epidemiology, clinical trials, or you know, animal studies and mechanistic data. My two cents is it's kind of a moot point if you eat healthy food. Because if you eat healthy food, seed oils are not there. So I make zero effort to avoid seed oils, but I also probably don't eat any seed oils outside of the odd time I indulge in chocolate-covered whatevers. Ozempic, biggest health trend, I would say, of 2023. I don't know if you agree or disagree, 
is it going to continue to be all the rage in 2024 or are people going to start following your sensible advice and go back to the old fashioned way, which is exercise, eating healthy whole foods? Yeah, I don't think Ozempic or its counterparts are going anywhere in 2024. I think Ozempic will be displaced by Moderna. Will be will will take on more of its uh, its use case because I think it's a better drug. But uh, I don't think GLP one agonists are going anywhere. Okay, Peter. So my uh, resolution this year is to is to dunk a basketball before the end of the year. I'm a 33 year old, six foot four, reasonably healthy, decent shape guy. Give me some tips. I, I couldn't let this call happen without some advice from you. Like, what, what workout do I need to be doing? What muscles do I need to be working? How am I going to do this? What's your vertical jump right now? Do not know. I wouldn't say I have great hops would be my guess. Okay. I mean, I would start by benchmarking it. And so, you know, you need to test what your vertical jump is right now. And let's assume it's, you know, 22 inches or 23 inches or something like that. And then I don't know enough about dunking a basketball, but I'm going to guess that that's going to need to go up by 12 to 16 inches. And believe it or not, that's actually, it's actually quite a formula to do this, right? It's basically power to weight ratio. So you're going to have to do two types of training, basically the type of training that increases type two muscle fibers and the type of training that increases explosiveness. So it's going to be lots of heavy leg hip hinging, so deadlifts and leg presses, probably combined with plyometrics. And there's something called post-activation potentiation where when you superset plyometrics with heavy deadlifts, they actually complement each other, which is counterintuitive. Peter, I, I'm now regretting my resolution because this sounds very hard <laughs> and like lots of hard work, but thank you for your advice. <laughs> we'll check back here in a year to see if Ollie has actually dunked a basketball. Dr. Peter Atia, as always, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Ollie. Twenty twenty three was a big year for pop culture, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I like to live half of my life in the gutter, which is to say, yes, I am a fan of The Real Housewives. So I also followed Scandaval. Those of you who also are gross like me will know what I'm talking about. There was the Renaissance tour. There was the Eras tour. There was revelations about Prince Harry's you-know-what. And then, of course, there was Gwyneth Paltrow's ski trial. Who could forget the fashion there and the fact that she infamously lost half a day of skiing? I do hope she's back at the slopes this year. And let's not forget the Britney memoir, Barry. You know, one of the free press books of the year, surely. <laughs> but maybe we should talk to someone who actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to culture. What do you think? I agree. Let's call up Susie Weiss, pop culture aficionado, member of Gen Z, also happens to be my sister and a free press reporter. And let's just say she is very online. Hello, Susie Weiss. Welcome to Honestly. Hello, Barry Weiss. Thanks for having me. Okay, Susie, let's start with a big one. What was the biggest pop culture event in 2023? You know, it was a great year for pop culture, but I think the biggest event, you got to hand it to the queen. You got to hand it to Taylor Swift and the fever she inspired. I think she sort of revived the monoculture with her heiress tour. And she was the true Walter Cronkite of 2023. Everyone tuned in. And I think even more than that, she kind of put the nail in the coffin of the age of irony. It's like, whatever you think of Taylor Swift, the girl is earnest, okay? She's hardworking. As Gen C would put it, she understands the assignment. She gives the people a show and she's extremely not subversive, okay? I think that's what people really liked about her. So I think being earnest is back, as is being traditionally cool. We'll see with her relationship 
it's not about being a dork anymore. It's not about learning to code. It's about being a pretty blonde girl dating a jock. (laughs) I love it. So Susie, there were some notable breakups in 2023. Kendall Jenner and Bad Bunny, Rip, Cardi B and Offset. I don't really know who Offset is. Joe Jonas and Sophie Turner, rest in peace as well. I want you to tell me if these other couples are going to stay together in 2024. And let's start with the two we just mentioned, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Going to stay together, going to break up. Together forever. This is it. Wow. You heard it here first. Wow. All right. Okay, Timothy Chalamet and Kylie Jenner. And I pronounce that to be clear, Timothy Chalamet. Um, they're not even together now. What? That's not a, that's not a real relationship. That's a psyop. Really? Yeah. Okay. Selena Gomez and Benny Blanco. Okay, hear me out. First marriage. Very good first marriage between those two. Okay, Ariana Grande and someone called Ethan Slater. This was maybe the most bizarre twist in the Ariana Grande boyfriend parade is her co-star Ethan Slater, who once starred in SpongeBob SquarePants, the musical. I actually don't think they're dating. I think they're gay roommates. And I want to make sure I'm getting this right. He was married. They had a young child and she broke up the marriage. Yes. They got cast in Wicked together. And this is where they met. And they've kind of been dating ever since. And they're sort of fusing into one sort of androgynous being with no eyebrows. It's really something incredible to behold. Okay, Susie. So speaking of relationships, what are some trends when it comes to love and dating in 2024? Help explain to normies like me and Barry what the kids are doing online, what's coming next, what terrifying twist is ahead. Okay, well, good news for both of you. I think the buck has stopped with the crazy online dating trends. I think dating apps are over. I think meeting online is over, whether it's, you know, in the comments of an Instagram or some sort of digital matchmaking, trad, service thing. I think meeting in real life, setups, that's going to be all the rage. That means monogamy is back, y'all. Thruples, threesomes, kinks, out. But lying and manipulation and affairs back in. So so all very trad. Those are all very trad ways of handling things. It's all very trad. So yeah, I think it, it's going to be... So secret polyamory, i.e. cheating, is in. Right. But polyamory in which people come out as polyamorous is out. Exactly. It's going to be the return of shame. It's time to bring the mistress back is what Susie's saying. The mistress and the mystery, y'all. Not everyone needs to know everything. <laughs> no more transparency. I'll add that interracial relationships are very in, but interfaith relationships are very out. Okay, interesting. Religion. So religion in? Religion in. God's so in. Spirituality out. So crystals are out. Catholic church in? Yes. Who do you think was the big breakout star of 2023? Oh my gosh. We were spoiled for riches this year. Some of my favorite stars were Ayo Adebri, Alex Edelman, Paul Mescal, I think, really had a moment. Troy C. Vaughn, Barry Cogan, who is in Saltburn, who is awesome. But I think the king and queen breakout stars, I would say, are Renee Rapp. She's going to be starring in the Mean Girls musical. She starred in Sex Lives of College Girls. She's hosting SNL in a few weeks. She has a single with Megan Thee Stallion. So she kind of has her hands in a lot of different pots. And then the other one, I would say, is Jacob Elordi. He was also in Saltburn and in Priscilla. He's set to have a huge year. And he is who the Hollywood industrial complex wishes Timothy Chalamet was. He is the true heartthrob. He's an all-American, even though he's from Australia. Okay, so let's talk aesthetic trends, Susie. Let's. I think 2023, the, the prize really goes to Barbie core as the, the big trend. But, you know, you had ballet core, mermaid core, 
Gorp Core has been floating around for a few years now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're on Core Watch here. What's 2024's big trend? Thank you for asking the tough questions, Ollie. I think this year, <laughs> it's all about T-Core. It's all about staying in. International travel. What's T-Core? Drinking T-E-A, tea. Like- T-E-A. <laughs> oh, T. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Though I do think golf is coming back. Golf is a new tennis, y'all. Golf is already back, as I understand it. Golf is cool again. So T-Core, golf core. What other cores? Being a drunk. Being sober is out. Oh. (laughs) So I think being an addict core could be really in. Traveling, out. Traveling internationally, out. Okay? Uh, The big one I will posit is Americana core. Bandanas. Fringe jackets. Canned (laughs) beer. I'm thinking Midwestern style, and I want you to be paying a special attention to Michigan. <laughs> Don't laugh, Barry. This is serious. Listen, there were a lot of fun viral moments last year. I remember when Nellie asked me how often I thought about the Roman Empire, and the answer was absolutely never, <laughs> except in their oppression of Jews. Um, so what was your favorite TikTok bit in 2023? So there were a lot of girl trends, girl dinner, girl math. Girl dinner is when you just eat like chunks of cheese and like a gummy vitamin for dinner. Girl math is when you justify a big purchase, hot girl walks, coastal cowgirls. But I think the trend that really stands out for me is this whole romanticize your life trend. So that might look like, you know, cutting up your fruit for breakfast or having a glass of wine in the bath or lighting a candle, literally stopping to smell the roses. It's all very main character, Taylor Swift coded, anti-hyper productivity culture and vaguely like crazy narcissist. But ultimately I think it's really fun and positive. Tell me about my favorite subject. What's in and what's out when it comes to health and fitness and whatever wellness means in 2024? There is no doubt that wellness is over, y'all. Wheatgrass smoothies, you don't have to pretend to like those anymore. We are going back to the land. It's, it's about meat. It's about dairy. Beyond Burger Impossible, I think we will finally start to see those shudder. I'm sensing an incoming of like peasant foods. What are peasant foods? <laughs> like beans, porridge, soups, stews. I think that's, that's going to be big. If you can eat it in a bowl, that's kind of going to be the trend. So soup so in, salad so out? I mean, maybe a grainy salad, but warm salads. Warm salads are going to be in. Sweaters are going to be in. But when it comes to wellness and forcing yourself to drink like sea moss and collagen and all that bullshit, that's that's no more. Thank God. I'll add that when it comes to wellness, I think getting those full body scans that we see a lot of celebrities getting now, like those MRIs or even getting full body. Ezra, yeah. Yeah, or getting those blood workups like kind of getting all of the information and then doing DIY medicine. So like deciding for yourself in consultation with the internet what you need and then using an online doctor to have them send that to you. So Susie, to connect a couple of the things you've told us, you're going to be married, but probably there's an affair going on that no one talks about and you're going to be drinking too much Mm -hmm. and not worried about wellness, but self-diagnosing various (laughs) ailments and ordering drugs on the internet. In Michigan. In Michigan. In Michigan. 
sum it all up for us. Where are we going culturally in, in 2024? Okay, so everyone's been saying the 90s are back for so long. So it's easy to say, oh, the 80s are next, you know, pencil eyebrows and shoulder pads. But I think we should actually be looking towards the 1920s, a period of huge political and social upheaval, and yet a huge time of economic prosperity. So my big predictions, hedonism, consumerism, dance music, and at the very least, short haircuts for women. Okay, well, speaking of short haircuts, and I don't know if Susie's right about that one, let's dive a little bit deeper into all things fashion. Leandra Medine, welcome to Honestly. Hello. This is the first time you've been on this show. We've been trying to get you for a very long time. And I wondered if you wanted to introduce yourself to listeners who may not be familiar. My name is Leandra Medine Cohen, and I write a fashion newsletter on Substack called The Serial Isle, and it's about how to get dressed. Before I ran this newsletter, I ran a media company for 10 years that was called Man Repeller. She's sort of understating it. Man Repeller was like the chicest, most edgy, all of us sort of aspired to look like the kind of well, to look like Leandra Medine, who was then not Leandra Medine Cohen with two children. <laughs> um, so anyway, we're very, very excited to have you on here. And we wanted to ask you about what you predict fashion-wise, sartorial-wise in 2024. This is like a really high stakes, risky trend to go with, but we are seeing more and more people opt out of wearing pants. It's like the hemline index has come so high that we have actually foregone the skirt or the shorts altogether. We are just wearing underwear and pantyhose. It's like this vaguely incomplete look that somehow makes the most uncool yet cool shoes look better and complements oversized winter coats in the most unconventional ways and makes it easier to pick a sweater because you don't have to wonder about how it tucks into what you're wearing on the bottom. Okay, this it feels like an HR violation of an outfit. And I guess I want to know, have you been going out into the New York City winter with no pants? Last night, I went to a post-Hanukkah Hanukkah party, and I was wearing full wool underwear with sparkly tights underneath. I'm, I'm going to throw in one lower stakes, actually universally wearable trend, because this is very niche, and I'm acutely aware of that, and I do not recommend trying a trend that you don't genuinely feel comfortable putting on or aren't actually curious about trying, because the whole point of wearing clothes is like serving yourself and propping up the parts of yourself you like the most. We've been wearing a lot of red, like red accents have become a really big thing over the last few years. I think we're reaching peak red and the next color to pay attention to is this like shade of slimy pistachio green. That makes for such a good complement to shades of brown and gray and khaki. And I feel like you're gonna wanna wear more brown pants, less black pants. It's a better complement color. 
you look more like a tree, which makes you feel more rooted and therefore grounded. And that's a nice feeling when you're inside of a storm. Love it. Okay, Leandra, so, you know, I'm a 30-something dude who isn't reading fashion blogs obsessively, but I even I can notice the, the bigger picture trends out there on the streets. And it feels like fashion is more cyclical and nostalgic than ever. And one minute it's the 70s, and right now everyone, it feels like we're back in middle school and everyone's dressing like it's the 90s. What do you think these trends actually tell us about like our culture and politics more generally. The slip dresses and baggy jeans mean we're all pining for Bill Clinton. Like, How do you think about how fashion influences or reflects our, our politics and our culture? This is an interesting question. What's unique about the way that the trend cycle works nowadays is that it has become so much faster and there are so many trends that splinter off into a million micro trends that appeal to the infinite subcultures that are created on social media platforms like Instagram and especially TikTok. And in a way, they do reflect the culture and the politics, or or specifically, I'm going to speak to the culture, because the turnover is so quick and the attention span to sort of like let these trends settle in almost doesn't exist. There's no central point of focus. And that makes it really hard to like genuinely understand the way the cycle is working and where the trends are deriving from. And I feel like that's sort of happening to us culturally too, to the extent that I know most of the people in my circle feel like we've lost the plot. That's happened with fashion too. You you sort of like, if you try to catch the trends, it can feel a bit like a fool's errand because there's, there's no plot or through line in the way that there has been in the past. And there's something really beautiful about it because it's a celebration of expression and also something chaotic about it. Leandra, what is one trend you cannot wait to see die in 2024? I don't, trends don't die anymore. But like if I never see another rubber Yeezy shoe again, I think I'll be fine. I'll I'll be okay. (laughs) Damn it, there's my whole whole shoe wardrobe gone right there, Leandra. I hear they're very comfortable, so (laughs) no shade to anyone who wears them. So Leandra, I think we're all parents of young girls. And as you know, I'm trying to be the best girl dad I can over here. So so help me with what I should be dressing my 18-month-old in, in 2024. I feel like the best thing you can do for a girl as far as getting her dressed is just put her in what boosts her confidence. I don't know if you have this experience, but I see my kids come alive when they are wearing clothes that make them feel magical. It is the purest expression of what style can unlock in a person's life. So if she wants to wear a ridiculous princess dress and look psychotic on the street, just let her do it. Okay, so just just roll with it is your advice. You know what's going to happen if you don't let her do it is she's going to become a 22-year-old girl who starts a fashion blog called Man Repeller and all of a sudden has all this freedom to choose what she can wear and she'll wear the princess dress then. <laughs> Get it out of her system now. Leandra Medine, thank you so much as always for your sartorial wisdom. We can't wait to see what you wear in 2024. Thanks for having me. Okay, Ollie, next up, we got to talk about words, which is our business, and the way that we speak. Yeah, and, and it feels like, Barry, that with TikTok and social media, 
you know, new words just bubble up more quickly than ever before. And, you know, maybe it's me getting older, but I, I, see, I see new words all the time and I, and I need to Google what they mean. Well, yeah, I'm surrounded by smarter, younger, more attractive people here in the LA office. And they say things to me that I don't know if it's something they literally made up or if it's, you know, for example, the word riz. I, I heard that all the time. And then I realized, you know, it was short for charisma or they taught me about mid or chuggy. And I realize I'm aging myself even in those examples. As a fellow elder inside the free press, what are words that you came across this year that you had never heard of before? You know, I will say I will I'll doff my cap to the Gen Z crowd when it comes to the word ick, which I think is used to describe a very specific thing that you know, romantic partner does that is kind of an instant turnoff. Unlike some new slang where it just seems like a shortening of an old word, it seems to like really capture something specific that didn't have a word before, which is like not just a turnoff, but like a weird small thing that you're just like, okay, I'm out. Yeah, it gave me the ick. Like my sister said an ick for her is as soon as she sees a guy wearing ice skates on an ice rink, it's over. Like that's her ick. <laughs> Okay, that's amazing. Well, when it comes to words and thinking about words, there is no one who I like to hear from more than the wonderful John McWhorter, the linguist. So let's call him up and get his take. John McWhorter, welcome to Honestly. Great to be here. I hope that everyone listening knows the name John McWhorter, but for those who don't know him, he is a linguistics professor at Columbia University. He is the host of the podcast Lexicon Valley, which is about all things language, and he also writes for a little newspaper called The New York Times. John, we're so glad to have you on here to talk about our ever-changing language. Very honored. Thank you very much. Okay, so one of the words that I mentioned before you came on when Ollie and I were talking about our favorite slang this year is also the Oxford word of the year, which in 2023 was the word riz. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about this word and how you felt about it winning the word of the year? You know, I thought it was just right because I only picked it up summer of 22 from my daughter's 10-year-old friends. They started using it, and I thought it was just some random syllable. Like I was getting a sense of what Riz means. I only learned that it was from Charisma about four months ago when I asked. And how current it is is clear from the fact that about a month ago, I used it in quotation marks in front of one of my classes at Columbia. I said, I'm going to give you a word that I'm not supposed to use, Riz. That got the biggest laugh because it was so inappropriate that I'm using it. And so I thought that one must be really hot. And so, yeah. Riz, because if you had said that to me in 2021, it would have sounded to me like something from Hungarian. So, John, Riz beat other words like situationship, swifty, parasocial. I wondered if you had a personal favorite for 2023 that jumped out at you and was especially interesting. Yeah, I did. And um, typically with me, because I wear cardigan sweaters and read too much, it's not all of that pop culture relevant, but... I think as of 2023, the word adjacent as a suffix hmm. stopped being funny. And so hmm. somebody is Jewish adjacent, somebody is showtune adjacent, etc. <laughs> That's not funny anymore. That's now just something that you say. Who knew even five years ago that adjacent, that word, was going to become a, a suffix? And yet now it is. And I would say that in 2023, my favorite, as in now I say it instead of just taking it in, is the adjacent. And then also there's another one. 
And this is older, but it really settled in and stopped making me feel weird in 2023. Bucket. Well, I'm going to put that into a different bucket. This business of putting things in metaphorical buckets, that's really in at this point. I would never say it. I get the feeling I'm too old to say it. But this bucket thing has really settled in. So 2024, none of us have a crystal ball, but I ask you, John McCorder, if you could predict what you think one of the words, at least, of 2024 will be, what would your prediction be? It's hard to predict what word is going to bubble up out of the soup. But what I do know, and I'm already preparing for it, is that in 2024, we are going to debate what the meaning is of two words. For a linguist, words aren't about what some word means. It's about the resonance of the word. What are the resonances of it, even if it technically means one thing? Really, words shine into other meanings. In 2024, we are going to talk endlessly, and I hope this doesn't constitute some kind of buzzkill. What is genocide? What does that mean? Because we all thought we knew what it meant, but it's being used differently. And also, anti-Semitism, what does it mean? We are going to have an endless national discussion about those two words. And by the time we're through with it, even though we're not going to know it quite yet, there's going to be a gradually emerging national consensus as to what those words mean that's different from how people would have felt five years ago. Okay, well, there's no elegant way to transition from talking about genocide and anti-Semitism to a game. So I'm just going to do it. John McCorder, are you up for playing a word game? Let's do a game. Okay, John, you're, you know, you're a professor that spends a lot of time doing lofty things like uh, critiquing Tolstoy translations, but we're going to drag you down into the gutter with the rest of us, and we're going to play a Gen Z culture slang word game. Um, we're going to throw out some Gen Z slang terms, which I confess I had to Google a couple of them, and you're going to tell us what they mean. You ready? I'll try. Okay, we're going to start with what I think is an easier one, which is stan. Oh, that's this, this word for a fan, like a, a maybe slightly obsessive fan. John, cap. Um, <laughs> and not as into insult playfully, which is like 1989. It means something else. It's not cap on you, not that. Mm. Uh-oh, is it a cap? Is it a noun? It's often used as no cap, if that's a... If that's a... Right, so like, like bussin' no cap. Do you, have you heard it? <laughs> it's like a lie or an exaggeration. I like that. Like, so no, no, no cap would be like saying for real, like... Yeah, for real. John McWart is amazing, no cap. But what's what's cap short for? I have no idea. Capitulation? <laughs> I just use it all the time. <laughs> you know, I think I've heard my students say it and not really, not about me, but not really quite known what they meant. No cap. Okay, chuggy. My 11-year-old uses that with her friend. <laughs> and to be honest, I overhear them and I never know what the hell that means. <laughs> what is it? It's lame. It means something is kind of lame or mid. I, I say like, here. Is that it, what they're saying? Slightly okay. uncool. Uncool. uncool like a, Cringy. Yeah. It's chuggy. That's what that means. Okay. Okay. Simp. Does it mean something along the lines of that's all I know? As in, like, that's simp sick, yo, or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing. That one I haven't heard at all. 
simp means like if you simp for someone online, it's like you're a big fan of someone. Like I'm oh, simping so for simping. Okay, I'm gonna use that one. Okay, ne- next uh, a snack spelled S N A C K. Correct. Does it indicate that one might find a person attractive for a brief period of time? Exactly. So, so it's like, like T-H-O-T, that hottie over there. Is it, is it that? <laughs> kind of like that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Next up, John, we've got it's giving. It's giving. Like a holiday thing? Or is it, it's a phrase like, oh, well, dude, it's giving. Yeah, two words. It's like it's giving. Mm. Oh, it's it's giving X. Like I'm in, I'm enjoying this. Right. There's a there's a good vibe. Like she's giving joy, meaning that some gossip is making me happy. And you use she in that kind of hot new way. Is that I'll use it how you would use it in a sentence. I am very anti it's giving, to be honest, but I would say it means like just it's giving cold if someone asks you what the weather was. You know, it's just, it's, it's very broadly used. Like it's it's the general vibe of something. You know, but like I, the, I think a good a good example would be like it's giving main character energy. This is fascinating. Okay, how about snatched? This isn't a physical thing, right? It is a physical thing. Um, but not the literal meaning. And it doesn't mean oh. plagiarism. It doesn't mean plagiarism. No. <laughs> Snatched. Is this, Snatched. Is so this, what I would. Is this the newest word for being angry, like salty, or something? I'm all snatched, no. dog. So if someone, if someone said, to, if someone said to me, "You look snatched," or "Your waist is snatched," I would be extremely happy. Does that help you? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it, it, it makes things it, it heightens things so oh is it like snatched yo like it, uh, it was a great party <laughs> or something no it's like Ollie. looks it's like in great shape like he's snatched like he's you his, mean he's right? buff like he's or just that he's buff yeah handsome I, oh, okay. I think just or maybe more broadly looks good maybe um she was straight up snatched Right? <laughs> you got it, John. You got You're it, ready. John. <laughs> You're ready for the... Okay, Ollie. Um, the next one we have which I th- is small. I think I'm saying that right. S-M-O-L. I know small. No, that's that cutie pie thing where they, they have pictures of cats and they spell it with an O. Yeah, that small thing. <laughs> next one up is Pookie. Pookie is a black Tino guy in L.A. whose car has a loud <laughs> engine. Not that Pookie. <laughs> Not that Pookie. <laughs> Different guy. <laughs> I don't know Pookie. <laughs> I think it's it's like sweetie. It's like a new term of endearment. Trot it out. See how the girls respond and if they've heard of it. I swear to God that Pookie is what I heard black people calling their children in the late 60s and early 70s. Come here, Pookie. So maybe it's making a comeback. Maybe it came back or maybe it's just an accidental resemblance. That's interesting. Pookie. Huh. Mm. Okay, John. Up next, Menti B. It can't be mentor, but it's not menthol cigarettes. Menti B. (laughs) Um, And it's not Cardi B, but the rhythm probably has something to do with it. Mm. No, I can't get this one. What is it? 
it's short for a mental breakdown. Like I'm having a real menti B today, John. Oh God. <laughs> Who's saying that? A lot of us. Many. <laughs> <laughs> many these of day, us. Yeah, these days. These days, many of let's us. Hope, let's hope that John doesn't have a menti B in 2024. <laughs> okay, la- last one in the game. Delulu is the Salulu. D- delusion and solution with a, a bit of wordplay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because Delulu sounds crazy and then Salulu rhymes. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know why I love that one. That is Being cute. delusional is the solution. I, I just really like and it. And I can't say it or everybody would laugh, but I, I like that one. Yeah. Okay, John, well, we're going to we're gonna crown you the winner of that game because even if you didn't get them all, I mean, I think some of your own definitions, even some of your own definitions were kind of even better than the actual definitions. So you get bonus <laughs> points for that. Thank you for playing. I can connect with my students. This works. Okay, John, I want to follow up on what we were talking about earlier to do with the politicization of language because it seems as though in recent years, especially new political belief systems, call it wokeness, call it whatever you want to call it, have been enforced through language. And I'm thinking of things like the fight over pronouns and I'm thinking of things like Latinx and other, other stuff like that. And I wonder, I mean, it seems to me like it's been a while since we've had any new crazy woke language like that. I, w- I wondered whether you thought that trend was in retreat. And also I wondered whether language has always been this politically contested or whether you feel like there's something special about the time we're living in right now. What's special about now is that it used to be that people who clear their throat a lot and have three names told us the way we were supposed to talk. And so you're supposed to use whom, you're supposed to say fewer books rather than less books. And that came from (laughs) sorts of people. It came from the right. These days, it's people from the left who are telling us how we're supposed to talk with the same peremptory attitude and the same sense that they're correct from on high. And hence, you know, Latinx, which, you know, it's fine if a certain writerly class want to use it, but people who are actually Latino for the most part aren't terribly interested. And certainly that is the case with the new they. And to be honest, I like the new they because I think that it's a handy way for people in our modern society to not have pronouns go against the way they think of themselves. But it's hard to use the new they if you're over, frankly, 40. You have to get used to it. And there are a lot of people who are never going to accept it. And it's been imposed from on high. I wouldn't say that I see this imposition from the left as eclipsing. Rather, I see a lot of it settling in depending on who you're talking to. And the truth is, young people, including my kids, use it fluently. So I guess the thing that always annoyed me about theys was the idea that only certain people contain multitudes and the rest of us are just kind of boring. Is that an argument that we should all be theys in the future? You know, to be honest, if that's what was decided, I mean, there'd be no way to enforce it. But to get rid of he and she completely and just everybody is a they, there are languages like that, believe it or not. They tend to be spoken on small islands or in tiny communities, but there are languages <laughs> where the third person is just one little word and everybody gets along fine. And if that were the case, then they wouldn't feel politicized, the new mm. they. There is no way we are going to impose that on this society of real people, but I'd be up for it. Final question, John. Does calling for the genocide of Jews constitute bullying and harassment? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> I think my answer is going to be yes, it does. 
<laughs> Snatched. <laughs> Pookie. Full of delights. As always, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Guys, I'm honored. This is great. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Tyler Cowen on the economy and Nate Silver on the election of the century. Stay with us. I don't know about you, but I'm always searching. Searching for new restaurants in my neighborhood, searching for better clothes, searching for better clogs. Okay, that last one might just be me. But I search everywhere on Google, Instagram, Twitter, Resi, you name it. But when you're hiring for your business, the best way to search is not to search at all. Don't search, match. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. Ditch the busy work and the endless scrolling and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. A recent survey showed that 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Indeed's matching engine constantly learns from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Honestly. Just go to Indeed.com slash Honestly right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Honestly. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How's your social battery right now? Full? Drained? Maybe at half-life? It's easy to spread ourselves too thin, especially with spring right around the corner. What's the right amount of socializing for you? How do you recharge? Do you thrive around lots of people or do you think you need more alone time? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that works for you and that doesn't leave you drained. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Go to betterhelp.com slash honestly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash honestly. Okay, Barry, so I want to get to election predictions in a little bit. But um, before we do that, I think we need to talk about the economy because, I mean, it matters in and of itself. And then obviously, it's going to be hugely important when it comes to 2024 and who's going to win the presidential election. So I think it's economics time. Okay, let's do it. There's one person that I think of when I hear the word economy, and that is friend of the pod, friend of the free press, the ever brilliant Tyler Cowen. Tyler, welcome back to Honestly. Happy to be here. So Tyler, early economic predictions seem to be saying that the economy might be kind of okay in 2024 and that it's okay to be a little optimistic. And I'm wondering what you think of that. 2024 is not slated to be a terrible year. We have, in fact, actually licked inflation without a recession, which was a shock to many economists. The global order possibly is stabilizing somewhat compared to the last 12 months. The U.S. economy is highly innovative in artificial intelligence and the biomedical area, and there's a fair amount to be happy about. So predictions are tough. 
Keep in mind that one out of every six years, the U.S. economy, you know, might be in recession. There's always a chance of that. But so far, so good. So, Tyler, you said we have licked inflation in the, in the past tense. Does that mean have we, have we already achieved the mythical soft landing that was said to be impossible? We have achieved the mythical soft landing. Now, consumer debt is high. There's problems in the business sector, problems with commercial real estate, still some problems in banking. There are always concerns. There could be a big international shock. Something else terrible could happen. But you couldn't have asked for a better ending to the 9% inflation. It shocked almost everyone. Everywhere I look in 2023, I was told that the downturn was coming, a recession was coming. But as expensive as things were, a recession didn't come in 2023. How did we avoid it? And are we going to avoid it in 2024 too? The Fed did a brilliant job in being credible and telling people it would bring down inflation. Both parties supported that move. It was consistent, but done with a minimum of drama and everything went almost perfectly. It's amazing. You know, you think there's so many things going wrong in the world. It's so easy to become a pessimist. But every now and then, our government, believe it or not, pulls some things off pretty well. Okay, I want to home in on a few areas that people should pay attention to. And I want you to tell us, in your estimation, if prices, which have been very high, are going to go up or down, or if they're going to stay the same. Housing, up or down in 2024? It depends where you live, but I think in quality areas, quality real estate remains one of the best buys and the best investments. Now, are prices in rural Nebraska going to go up? Maybe not. But for most of you, I'm bullish. And how about rent, Tyler? Rents, I think, have stabilized. You know, interest rates are falling. Job market is still pretty strong. So rent won't be cheap. But again, I think what you see is what you'll get. If you're affording your rent right now, that will continue. Groceries. Food is expensive, and people buy food very frequently. It's one reason why Joe Biden is not popular. I don't see why that's going to change. And I think the fact that there's still somewhat of a shortage in the service sector means those labor costs are higher. Eating out in a restaurant will never be cheap again, and we're stuck with that one. And let's go to the favorite of kind of political attack ads, which is the cost of filling a tank of gas. Well, that's like buying food. You do it pretty often, and it feels like it's eating into your discretionary income. So if you're, say, middle class or lower middle class, you have to fill your car with gas. That costs you $50. Then you say, well, maybe I can't, you know, go out to the movies tomorrow night. And you feel that. You remember that. The United States has done a great job becoming more or less energy self-sufficient. We're the world's largest exporter of oil by far. We're pretty well protected against energy price shocks. But I think the best bet of the future price of gas is the current price of gas. And that is not super cheap, but it's much better than it had been. So Tyler, we've talked about how the economy has done a lot better than people thought it would at the start of 2023. And so before we get into the business of making too many predictions for next year, what went wrong with last year's predictions? I'm not saying you personally, but economists as a a group missed the story. Why was that? Well, how about the core hypothesis that we don't know what we're talking about? (laughs) So throughout the year, I was uncertain. Uh, I didn't call what happened, but I thought it was possible. But I was deeply uncertain, and I heard a lot of different points of view, and I thought no one has a really good forecast here. I think which is the correct macro model? It simply changes over time. So you can have decades when Milton Friedman's monetarism is true. Maybe in the 30s, Keynes was right. And now all of a sudden, we're in yet another different world. 
And economists mentally have not adjusted to that. Another thing economists spent a lot of this year debating is the gap between the hard economic numbers and the kind of economic mood in the country, the so-called vibe session and the debate about it. (laughs) And so the question is, you know, why were people gloomy about the economy, given the reasonably strong numbers? And things are looking up on the hard numbers, but are the vibes going to improve as well? The mood is not wrong. People have learned that valuable things can be snatched away from them. First there was COVID, then there was the inflation, A bit before that was the great financial crisis, so of course people are more nervous. They don't feel anymore that they can plan for the next two or three years the way they might have thought in, say, 2004. So the numbers are good, that's correct. Maybe people should be a bit more optimistic, but it is wrong to dismiss their concerns. They understand something that the politicians do not. Tyler, let's do a little game, which is bullish or bearish. I'll start. Crypto. Bullish or bearish? Crypto is underrated by the world by now. You have the scandal with SBF and he's been sent to jail and the price fell to such a a low level. But now Bitcoin is about at 43, 44K, which is not so far from the previous highs. Mainstream institutions are working with blockchains and crypto. It probably will end up being integrated into our financial infrastructure if the regulators allow So I'm relatively bullish on crypto. I'll say it's underrated. And quick question, how much crypto do you own? A small amount. Uh, I'm not a gambler by nature. My wife works for the SEC. It's limited what I can invest in. But I don't think people should be short crypto. Any specific coins we should look at? Bitcoin, Ether. If there's some other coin that's going to do great, we don't know about it yet. You know, maybe the AIs will decide for us which coin they want to use. It could just be their coin, not one of our coins. But no one's in a position to make that kind of prediction at the moment. Okay, Tyler, next one. AI and specifically open AI, bullish or bearish? Absolutely bullish. GPT-4 is incredible. It's only going to get better. I don't think the regulators will stop it. It does amazing things. The people who are disillusioned usually don't know how to use it. And we have actually built a very real kind of intelligence. It's not conscious. But on most tasks, it's already smarter than most humans. How about China? Bullish or bearish? Oh, I would say modestly bearish, but so many people I know are so bearish that I think China is underrated. There's a lot of good Chinese companies. They have a lot of talent. All the drawbacks and flaws and mistakes are well known. Their demographics are terrible. But if you're looking for talent in the world, China is a main place. And I think we're underrating it a little. It'll bounce back. It'll never grow at 8% again, but I wouldn't write it off. Speaking of Chinese companies, how about TikTok? Uh, They may end up banned in the United States or sold to an American company. I think it's a fad that will pass, just as young people are no longer so obsessed with Facebook or MySpace. There's a cyclical nature to these things. After a while, a social media site stops being cool And TikTok will enter the pantheon of history, but history indeed it will be. Blue cities, bullish or bearish? It depends on the city. So I think artificial intelligence in the nick of time will save San Francisco. And finally, the voters will revolt and elect semi-sensible representatives. You really are an optimist, Tyler. Seattle and Portland. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see the turnaround coming for Seattle or Portland. New York is a more complicated story, but it's much more diversified. So I'm not as bearish as a lot of my friends. The problems are real. The governance is terrible. 
but there is some amount of common sense in human beings. And I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that blue cities don't work. Read Noah Smith these days, right? He's an economist of the left. He's just pounding on blue cities all the time and for the right reasons. So there's been a shift in thinking in the last year on many issues, and that's incredibly important. And that will help to shape 2024, I hope, for the better. Okay, Tyler, Twitter or X, are we bullish or bearish? Oh, obviously bullish. It is still the place to go to follow controversies. So you look at Claudine Gay or that supposed advance for superconductivity or what happened you know, with Gaza and Israel. It's simply where you need to be. And people who don't admit that are fooling themselves. And Elon made a brilliant move buying it. He may not make money from it, but as an investment in changing the world, I think it's been great. Totally agree. Speaking of Gaza and Israel, Israel, bullish or bearish? Well, I've long been bullish on Israel. I don't see any reason to change that, at least so far. And this is what, December 28? Iran has been quite shy about a bigger, broader war. UAE and Saudi still ultimately want to be working with Israel. All that could change. But again, relative to October 7, I think it's gone better than one might have feared. The Ivy League, bullish or bearish? Well, I think my friends underrate it. Some of them suggest these top schools are just hollowed out and all just a bunch of crud and nothing good happens there. And it's simply like Chairman Mao and woke marches and anti-Semitism. <laughs> well, there, a lot, there's a lot of that. <laughs> there's a lot of that. But so many of the most talented people are still in those places. They're not going to kick out the nonsense, but they'll make enough marginal reforms to stay off the front page. And I think they'll limp through... And if someday cancer is cured, the chance that that has come out of a top university is really pretty high. And I don't think that's going to change. Tyler, last one. Bullish or bearish on America? Oh, very bullish. I think I always have been. We have the most and the best talent. We're still, by and large, the freest nation. Uh, We have food. We have water. We have energy. We span two oceans. We don't have an immediate geopolitical enemy. If you had to take like our problems versus the problems of any other country in the world, you'd rather have our problems. And people here, to some extent, still believe in individual liberty, however grim it may seem at times. We still have that. And you're part of it. Oh, thanks, Tyler. Great to chat with you all. Take care. Thanks, Tyler. Let's pivot to politics because it's 2024. And I think when most Americans hear those numbers, they think about one thing. And that is the presidential election between likely, probably, almost certainly Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We're watching the same movie yet again. Yeah, it looks that way, Barry. And it fills me and I'm sure lots of free press readers with dread. To say the least, go read our comment section. Okay, well, let's talk to two people about the election. And first, Let's get a better look at what's going on with the Republican Party and with the Republican base. And I'm thinking we can call up pollster Frank Luntz. Frank, welcome to Honestly. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. So for those who don't know the name Frank Luntz, 
you should be embarrassed because Frank Luntz is the American pollster. He's also a kind of branding master, although he probably doesn't think of himself that way. He is responsible for rebranding the estate tax as the death tax and for rebranding, and he'll correct me if I'm wrong, global warming into climate change. He is also a total freak for American politics. If you're someone like me who's watched the West Wing like five times over, you have nothing on Frank Luntz, who has an actual replica of the Oval Office in his house in Los Angeles. Frank Lentz, we're so happy you're here with us. Yeah, but I, I got to tell you something. I'm not so happy about 2024. I thought 2023 was bad. I think 2024 is going to be worse. And I've heard people say that this is slouching to Election Day. I think we're running headfirst as fast as we possibly can to a disaster. I don't think the American people realize that the consequences this time are not like 2016 or 2020. The consequences this time could be our American democracy. Well, let's maybe stick on that for a second before we get into the brass tacks of where things stand as of today, the beginning of 2024. What do you mean when you say that? Because I think, Frank, a lot of people listening to you say that will say, we've heard this before. We've heard in 2016 that democracy was on the ballot. We heard in 2020 that democracy's on the ballot. Here's Frank Luntz again telling us that in 2024, democracy's on the ballot, but this time for real. So make the case that it is actually different. Okay, number one, we're more polarized than we've ever been. And it's polarized in a negative, in a angry, in a vicious, in a mean-spirited way so that rather than embrace the things we love, we instead embrace and fight the things we hate. Number two, there is no limits to what we will say and what we will do. That honesty and integrity have nothing in American politics right now that people in charge are prepared to say anything and do anything to win. Number three, the most important value in our polling is truth. And I don't know where to go for it. I don't know what newspaper to read. I don't know what TV show to watch to actually get the truth. And number four, we truly define ourselves by those things that we hate most. And so we're not seeking unity. We're not seeking a decision. And I can add as an appendix, because it comes right from the TV show Succession, I don't believe we're going to even know who won on election day. Well, Frank, you know, as a, as a, as a longtime strategist in the Republican Party, tell us who you think is, you know, not who's going to win, but who you think is best suited to beat Biden of those in the field. Well, I think Donald Trump's the least suited. In fact, Donald Trump is the only Republican that would lose to Joe Biden. The next can I'll go in order. Ron DeSantis has run the worst campaign of any presidential candidate probably since Jeb Bush, which teaches you that governors of Florida should not be running for president. Both of them had good records. Both of them were successful politicians. And both of them completely struck out on the campaign trail. Next is Nikki Haley, who up until 48 hours ago was doing fantastic, winning debates, winning hearts and minds, winning donations. And then she can't simply say that when she hears the word civil war, she doesn't think slavery. This is a stupid blunder on her part, but the fact that the news media is still talking about it three days later tells you that she's been damaged. Chris Christie didn't even compete in Iowa. He is a brand in New Hampshire. He is significant in New Hampshire. The question is, where does he go from New Hampshire? New Hampshire allows independents to vote. Iowa does not. Christie needs that independent infusion. 
And uh, and in he's got it in New Hampshire, he doesn't have it elsewhere. So I have to say that Donald Trump is the likely nominee, overwhelmingly the likely nominee. And if I can put this in historic perspective, no one has ever lost a nomination with this much of a lead that Donald Trump has among Republicans. Can you construct any plausible scenario that ends with someone not named Trump as the Republican nominee? And if so, what does that, you know, walk us through the steps of that? What does that look like? Let's be blunt. It would require Nikki Haley to win in New Hampshire. Is that impossible? Actually, no. There is an Iowa debate. There is a New Hampshire debate. There are town halls. All of these are nationwide. So there is time for her to continue to move. It's just that it's not likely, and she has so much ground to cover. She has all of the momentum of the conservative donor class and all of the rage of the conservative base, so much so that I'm sure you saw this. Donald Trump Jr. said recently that he would forbid his dad selecting Haley as his VP. He said, quote, I would go to great lengths to make sure it doesn't happen and that Haley is, quote, a puppet of the establishment, no different than academia and Harvard. How can that be overcome, even if she does win in New Hampshire? By the same challenge that faces Chris Christie, which is you have to bring in independence. And what comes right after? There are two states that come after New Hampshire. Nevada, which is known for doing weird stuff because it's a weird state, and then her home state of South Carolina. What Trump is hoping to do is to keep Haley back, keep win by double digits in New Hampshire, and then beat her by double digits in her own state, and that's the end. At that point, he's the nominee. I don't believe, by the way, to put this in perspective, at this point, it is not likely that Super Tuesday matters. It is likely that we will know the Republican nominee before March 1st, and so Super Tuesday will be irrelevant. But the only way to change that is for Haley to win in New Hampshire. Okay, let's, let's say Trump does win, Frank. What are your thoughts on who his running mate might be? Well, I have only one thought, and it's the governor of South Dakota, Christy Noem. You mentioned this earlier, Frank, but they're pulling Biden and Trump, that is, very close together. Trump, in fact, at the end of last month and the end of December was leading Biden in almost every poll. But as everyone says, still too close to call. Trump, Biden, who wins? Looking at the polling, at the crosstabs, in analyzing the comments of people in my focus groups, I have to look at the election as it is now. I assume that Trump will be found guilty of something. I don't believe that they will have taken it through the appeals process, but he'll be found guilty. And I no longer believe that that will shift enough voters. I believe that Biden is getting weaker and weaker by the day. Younger voters will not vote for Donald Trump. No way. But they may stay home. Black women will not vote for Donald Trump, but black men may. And the group that's moving the fastest is the Latino voters. And they've moved from a 15-point Biden advantage to a even or even Trump being up. Based on all of these numbers, and I know you're thinking to yourself, why can't I just answer it? But as a pollster, I have to give you the context. <laughs> That's what you come to me for. If you maybe bet on it right now, I'd say that Trump wins. But here's the problem. Let's say Trump loses by 1%. Let's say that, that there are three states that are decided by less than 1%, because in the end, it's, of course, the Electoral College. He won't accept defeat. So he's going to tell all of his people that he won, and it's going to be another 40 or 50% of his own voters who will believe he won. And that's why I believe that democracy is in jeopardy. Because if you can't 
confirm within 24 hours of the election who won and who lost, then, the, then it's not a shit show, then it's the disintegration of democracy as we know it. Frank, is there any chance that Biden is not the Democratic nominee in 2024? He would have to step aside voluntarily and he'd have to do it almost immediately. Any chance of that? There, there has to be a chance because in the end, you, if he loses to Donald Trump, that will be his legacy for the rest of time, that he gave the presidency back to this individual. And I don't believe after passing all this significant legislation, you can argue whether it's good or bad, but it is significant. I don't believe that he will want to be known as that individual. The person who could talk him out of it, the only individual, is his wife. And she has to decide what her legacy is going to be as well. As an active, participatory, engaged first lady, one of our best in modern times, or the person who said to her husband, you stay around, you fight this because you think you're the only one who can beat Donald Trump. Nobody is looking Joe Biden straight in the eye and saying to him, you're going to lose this thing. It doesn't happen in the White House. It doesn't happen in politics. She's the only one who could do this. And clearly she's not doing it. As far as Dean Phillips, he knows the issues. His position is mainstream Democratic position. He is the new generation. But Biden's been smart. Don't debate him. Don't even run in New Hampshire. Don't engage him in any way. And so he's not picking up steam because, frankly, there's no air in that balloon. What does it say about the state of our country that we're back with these two extremely older men? Like, what does it say about the state of our country that these are our choices? Because I think most of us are looking at this and just baffled that these are the options laid before us in a country of more than 330 million people. The fact is our education system is failing our country that we're not teaching civility and decency and most importantly, mutual respect, that it's now all about winning and that's the only judge of whether we're successful or not. I think it says that our democracy in 2024 is failing. I believe much of that is because of the people who report it. We don't get our news to inform us. We get our news to affirm us and that's wrong. I've watched clips from Fox and MSNBC and CNN, and I don't, it's, it's, I'm frightened. And yeah, I know that people are going to watch this podcast. And they're going to fill the comments with the stupid guy who helped create the system is now bitching about it. Well, you know what? Get over it because it's your country. I'm older. I'm not particularly healthy and I'm not going to be around for that much <laughs> I can have to see this shit show. Barry and Ollie, I can, I'm looking at you. I don't know if people will be able to see you or just hear you, but you guys are young and you're vibrant and you're smart as hell and you don't deserve the country that's been given to you right now. And if someone doesn't stand up and say, enough! One final point. This is why I'm hoping that we do have a third-party candidate because I want that individual, no matter who it is, to put one hand up to the Democratic nominee, one hand up to the Republican nominee, face both of them and say that one word, enough. Enough of this bullshit. I actually want them to swear. Frank Lentz, thank you so much for making the time. I'm sorry to be so depressing, but uh, it's, it's what I believe. 
Okay, Ollie. Well, that was a depressing call with Frank Lenz. Yeah, I didn't uh, leave our chat with Frank feeling especially excited about uh, the election year ahead of us, Barry, but maybe uh, we should try someone else and maybe maybe they can cheer us up. It's Mr. Nate Silver. Nate Silver, welcome to Honestly. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Um, before we get into it, Listeners will surely know the name Nate Silver, but in case you've been living under a rock for the past several major election cycles, Nate is a statistician who founded and was the editor-in-chief of 538, and now, as he tells us, is working on four hours of sleep because he is in the final stretch of his book. Nate, plug your book. So the title of the book is On the Edge. It's a book about the kind of modern world of gambling and risk that have been kind of embedded for two years, talking to poker players and sports bettors and effective altruists and hedge fund guys and crypto traders for kind of like a new world that we're all facing and trying to understand what makes them tick basically is is the pitch. Okay, so let's take the gambling framework and dive into politics, Nate. The thing you do in sports betting is you take a judgment versus the conventional wisdom and you decide, you know, whether the money line is too high or too low or whatever and, and make a call. So Let's do that with politics. What do you think conventional wisdom is right now when it comes to Trump-Biden? Let's focus on that first. And where are you versus conventional wisdom? If you go to like prediction market sites, we can actually bet on this stuff. Trump has about a 40% chance of being elected, Biden 30%, and the rest of the field 30% combined. So Nikki Haley, Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris, et cetera, right? The news that I think people on this show might not like is I think that 30% is too high, too optimistic. I think it will very likely either be either Biden or Trump. So I might go 45% Trump, 45 Biden, 10% other. I'm interested in how the prospect of a third party candidate kind of changes how you think about the race in November. So third party candidates add chaos. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but they lead to more uncertainty where there are now different ways you can swap your vote. If you look at Ross Perot, for example, in 92, right, he at one point actually leads the polls and then drops back. People are just dissatisfied with these two major choices. It's like part of why like RFK is doing better than you might think. He's as high as like 20% in some polls. It's because people are just kind of trying to like scream at the electorate that we want other alternatives, right? In general, third party candidates lose vote share from when you go in the pre-election polls, when you get to November, people don't want to waste their vote. RFK Jr. seems to draw a little bit from both candidates. In principle, I think his stance is actually a little bit more Trumpian than Biden-esque, right? Um, having like people like West run or Jill Stein, that's clearly negative for Biden, obviously. There's no comparable alternative on the right. And also, I think this divide between what I call liberals, people would call kind of the center left, right? And like the left, progressive left, is pretty serious, right? When you have the types of claims that are made about Israel, for example, then like people are not playing around when there is, I think, an authentic divide over over Israel and some other issues, including the category of stuff that gets into the category of quote unquote woke stuff. Those are divides now that I think are like sincerely dividing the Democratic Party, Um, this kind of progressive coalition, as I called it, that elected Obama twice and Biden once, I think is is seriously frayed. And I'm not sure the center of gravity holds for for any Democrat, frankly, uh, but including including Biden. Nate, we're going to do a extremely unfair 
lightning round with you now in which I'm going to list a bunch of swing states. And instead of a complicated model that you've spent months building to chuck out an answer, you're going to do it the old-fashioned way and tell us what your gut says about who's going to win in each of these swing states. Sure. Okay, let's go Nevada first. Trump or Biden? Uh, I think Nevada is a little bit more Trumpy these days. Arizona, Nate. Trump or Biden? Biden. Georgia. Biden. I'm going to get all these wrong. Pennsylvania, my home state. Uh, that's like asking who's going to win the election. I don't want to say that necessarily. Um, Come on, Pennsylvania. Trump Pennsylvania, or Biden? Nate. I guess, I, guess to be, I guess Biden. Okay. Yeah, he's from Pennsylvania, sort of. Michigan. Uh, Trump. Okay, Wisconsin. Trump. Okay, and the biggest prediction of all, the one that you don't want to make, and you're going to hate me for even asking it, but bottom line it, gun to your head no, not, today. Not my, who's going to win my, the presidency uh, in 2024? Sh- sh- shoot me. <laughs> shoot me. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Nate Silver, good luck finishing your book, and thank you so much for making the time. One more break, and then we'll be back with historian Neil Ferguson on the state of the world. Stay with us. I don't know about you, but I'm always searching searching for new restaurants in my neighborhood, searching for better jeans, searching for better hypoallergenic detergents. Okay, that last one might just be me. But I search everywhere on Google, Instagram, Twitter, Resi, all of it. But when you're hiring for your business, as I have learned, the best way to search is to not search at all. Don't search, match. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. Ditch the busy work and the endless scrolling and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. A recent survey showed that 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Indeed's matching engine constantly learns from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Honestly. Just go to Indeed.com slash Honestly right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Honestly. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Barry, in many ways, it feels like the world is falling apart right now. I am personally on the verge of becoming a prepper. I heard that Mark Zuckerberg was building some many, many millions of dollars bunker. And I looked at Nellie and I thought, should we at least get a few cans of soup? I'm reading the news and it's making me feel worried. I have a sense as we begin 2024 that the big action hasn't even really begun. So I thought we could call up someone who I turn to when I'm trying to understand the world, in part because he offers not just really smart analysis, but he also gives us a kind of historical perspective. So should we give Neil Ferguson a call, Ollie? Let's do it. Neil, welcome back to Honestly. 
Oh, hello. What an unexpected call. (laughs) (laughs) Now, everyone who listens to this show surely knows the name Neil Ferguson. But in case you're new to this podcast, Neil is a historian. He's an opinion columnist at Bloomberg. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He is the author of something like 20 books. Most recently, he published Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. And he is also, and most importantly, one of the founders with me of a new university, which is the University of Austin or UATS. There you go for a plug. Neil, we really appreciate you being here. Great to be with you, Barry. Okay, so we thought that we'd sort of go through some of the hot spots and then ask you to tie together what all of these things mean. Obviously, there's so much going on in the world right now that I think for many people can feel almost overwhelming. One of those things, of course, is the war in Ukraine, Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. And I can't believe this, but next month is going to mark the two-year anniversary of that war. Hundreds of thousands have died in that war. And Russia, as of today, and we're at the very beginning of 2024, appears to be winning. There's also these horror stories I keep reading about Zelensky calling up really older men to serve who are sort of being ripped out of lines at the grocery store and sent to the front lines. And Zelensky's saying that he needs an additional half a million troops, even still. And in the meantime, at least among many people I know, it's anecdotal, polls though seem to back this up, Americans seem less and less supportive of a war that maybe two years ago they hadn't sort of viscerally supported. Where does this go in your view? Well, when the war began nearly two years ago, I thought the best analogy might actually be with the Korean War. You have to frame what we're going through as Cold War II, in my view, and Ukraine was the first hot war of the second Cold War. And in just the same way that in 1950, the outbreak of a hot war made many people understand better the world that they were in, I think that was true when the war broke out in Ukraine. It's obvious that Russia would not have launched that uh, offensive without Xi Jinping's okay. That was what Putin got before the offensive was launched. And without Chinese support, Russia would not be able to sustain the war effort. Massive exports of microprocessors and other things keep the the Russian war machine going. The problem with the analogy, and that was why I drew it, was what happened in Korea. Because what happened in Korea was you had a year of extraordinary kinetic warfare and then two years of attrition, effective stalemate, and then a kind of armistice, not really a full-scale peace, that left the country divided with an extremely dangerous border, and it's still there as we speak. And I've always felt that that was a plausible outcome for Ukraine, and not by any means the worst-case scenario, because after all, South Korea ended up being a very prosperous country despite everything. And Ukraine might manage that, but it's going to be very hard for Ukraine to win this war now for the reason you gave. The United States has essentially lost interest. It's stopped supporting financially Ukraine, and Ukraine is almost immediately running out of ammunition. This is a war of attrition, therefore Zelensky needs bodies. He needs men because the Russians have a lot of them. And that that was always one of the asymmetries of this conflict. So I expect the war to drag on through 2024 till at some point what happened in the case of the Korean War was that Stalin died. That was one of the ways in which the war was possible to end. I don't know whether Putin will oblige us by dying at some point soon. If he doesn't, I think this drags on. There's a worst-case scenario, of course, which would be that Russia begins to make significant gains. 
significantly degrades Ukraine's infrastructure. It's failing to do that right now with a massive air campaign. But if you just take that analogy as something to work with, I think we're entering that phase of our version of the Korean War that will be called stalemate. And Neil, one thing that we'll be looking out for in 2024 is what happens here in the US. But to what extent does Ukraine's future hinge on the election in November? I mean, is that going to make a big difference one way or the other? Well, people were saying that in Ukraine when I was last there back in September. But it turns out you don't need Donald Trump to get reelected for the aid to Ukraine to stop. It stopped already. And the election is, what, 10 months away. I think it's possible that the aid will restart because congressional leadership does not want to leave Ukraine entirely reliant on the Europeans, which right now it is. So I think it's not entirely over. Trump's re-election, which I'll give at this point 55% probability, would be a terrible blow for Ukraine, not necessarily fatal. Europeans understand, I'm spending a lot of time in Europe at the moment, that they now have to face the possibility of being on their own. All that fine talk of strategic autonomy, which we used to hear from President Macron, will have to become a reality very swiftly. The alternative, they now realize, is too awful to contemplate. Because if Ukraine loses, after all the fine rhetoric of 2022, that puts Russia in an extremely threatening position for the whole of Europe. And remember, one thing that Putin has shown is that sanctions don't stop a great power, which Russia is, not a superpower anymore, but it's a great power, with the backing of a superpower. Russia has mobilized in a way we haven't really seen in a very long time. And that large-scale military mobilization is going to put Putin in a very threatening position. So the Europeans can't really afford for Ukraine to be completely defeated because it will require them massively to increase their own defense budgets, which from a domestic political point of view is very difficult indeed. You mentioned what's at stake for Europe. What is at stake for the world more broadly if Ukraine loses this war in a significant way? Well, it wouldn't be the first time that the United States said, we'll back you and your independence and your democracy for as long as it takes. And then that turned out to be for as long as we feel like it. You know, ask the South Vietnamese. The United States has not done terribly well since the late 1960s in honoring this kind of commitment. Read The Quiet American and you'll find a certain familiar ring to it. Think of Afghanistan. I mean, the Biden administration's track record is much worse than you'd think if all you read was the New York Times, because it failed utterly to deter the Taliban from very quickly reasserting their hideous, barbaric regime uh, in 2021. It failed to deter Putin from escalating his invasion of Ukraine, and it failed to deter Iran from unleashing its proxies against Israel. And my question for 2024 is, who will they fail to deter this year? Because there's more that they can they can fail to deter. Well, Neil, that segues perfectly into um, my next question, which is about China. And it feels as though Xi Jinping is becoming more and more explicit about Taiwan and, and what China's plans are. I think the US official kind of intelligence prediction is, that they think the range of when China might try and take Taiwan might be between 2025 and 2027. Obviously, there's a chance that Xi acts earlier than America expects. So what do we do with all this information, with all this forecasting? What's kind of your sense of where things stand? And what should we be doing to be preparing for that? I remember two years ago, 
all the experts on Russia said, no, 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 Putin's not going to launch a full-blown uh, conventional force invasion of Ukraine. And I was one of the few people who said, war is coming. I have a similar feeling. The experts say China's not ready to make a move until on Taiwan until 2027. Uh, Bill Burns, director of Central Intelligence, has said this uh, a couple of times. And I just wonder about that because, as you say, Xi has most recently in his New Year address said that this is still his priority. The Taiwanese election is days away, and it seems likely that a candidate will win William Lai, who has in the past expressed his support for the idea of Taiwanese independence. That seems like as good a pretext as you get for launching some kind of action. I think the mistake many experts make is assuming that action means full-blown amphibious invasion. That's a really difficult thing to do across the Taiwan Strait, and I don't think the People's Liberation Army is remotely ready to do it. But they don't need to do that. They just need to blockade Taiwan. And I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if at some time this year, China imposes some kind of economic blockade. If I were advising Xi Jinping, I would say, do it. You'll never have a better opportunity. Uh, you'll never have an administration that will be more wrong-footed if you do it. They're not ready. They've talked the talk about Taiwan. Remember, Joe Biden on more than one occasion has sounded like he has an unambiguous commitment to the defense of Taiwan after 50 years where the United States was kind of ambiguous about its commitment. And yet, at the very time when the US is least able to honor such a commitment, this is not the 1990s when Bill Clinton could send a naval force and the Chinese were like, whoa, back down. Chinese now have the capacity to sink US aircraft carriers. If Joe Biden finds himself in an election year having to send a naval force across the Pacific to run that blockade, it's the Cuban Missile Crisis, only this time we get to be the Soviets and Joe Biden gets to be Khrushchev. And that, that analogy is another Cold War analogy that I find useful. Cuba was an island just off the United States that the Soviets uh, tried to effectively turn into a, a missile base. And John F. Kennedy imposed a blockade called it a quarantine, but it was a blockade. And the Soviets sent a naval force. It was the closest we came to World War III in the whole of the Cold War. If there's a Taiwan crisis of the sort I'm imagining, it will be like the Cuban Missile Crisis with the roles reversed. The Chinese will be the ones doing the blockading, and we'll be Khrushchev sending a naval force and risking World War III. So I, I hope I'm wrong about this. I hope Bill Burns is right, and we don't really have to worry about this until 2027. But Let's put it this way, our, our intelligence experts have been wrong in the past, and I wouldn't be entirely surprised if there was a Taiwan crisis potentially this month. Wow. Neil, in the Middle East, it feels like there are potential escalations the whole time, which the US just kind of ignores, um, which are those attacks on, on US troops. But let's move on to that region and focus on the, the, the focal point of, of the conflict there, which obviously is the Gaza Strip and the war between Hamas and Israel. Give us your sense of what stage that war is at, what the next phase of the war looks like, what you think happens next in Gaza. Well, I think so far as I can tell from the sources I have that the IDF is destroying Hamas. It is not being given as much time as it would like, but the noises that come out of Washington along the lines of, oh, this needs to get done, you have to stop. I don't think those noises are being accompanied by anything that really would stop Israel finishing this war. Insofar as it's possible to destroy Hamas, 
I think it's happening. The problem is that there is another theater that can explode into life at any point, and that's the Lebanese border with Israel, where Hezbollah has a far greater firepower at its disposal. The IDF would certainly like to act preemptively against that. It's not really able to for political reasons. That's something that Washington won't condone. So I think the critical question is not what happens in Gaza. I think that's now fairly clear. I think it's what happens with Hezbollah in Lebanon that is crucial. And the fact that Israel is taking the first steps against Hezbollah is, I think, significant. What do you think the odds are of that kind of escalation and a broader sort of regional escalation, the kind of worst case scenario involving Iran and I guess the US or some not necessarily direct conflict, but something approaching that? Well, and the US is extraordinarily reluctant to get into any kind of a war with Iran. Another administration might have taken October the 7th as the opportunity to impose major costs on Iran, and I think that would have been the correct thing to do. Uh, But this administration has been from the outset, to me, inexplicably wedded to the idea that it could resuscitate the Iran nuclear deal, that uh, project of the Obama administration, and it never has really exerted serious pressure on Iran. So I worry a lot that this reluctance to confront the source of the trouble, which is Tehran, means that Iran's proxies have a sense of impunity. It's not only Hamas, it's not only Hezbollah. The Houthis and other proxies are are feeling, you know, this is our moment because there is not really significant pressure being exerted on Iran itself. Neil, if you're Israel post-October 7th, and one of the great lessons is you can't actually allow a jihadi genocidal group to remain at one of your borders, isn't the lesson there that Israel must at some point strike Hezbollah to say nothing of Iran? That would be strategically logical. The problem is that Israel is so reliant on the United States and has been throughout its history, that it's very hard for it to act unilaterally in defiance of a very clear instruction from Washington. So I think there's a real tension there that may persist throughout the year until a new administration comes along and says, back to where we were. But that may not happen. As I said, it's 55% probability at this point, in my view, that Trump is elected. I think Trump's election is really important, potentially, because of its consequences for all that we've discussed. If he's re-elected, it's very bad news for Ukraine. Uh, It's probably quite good news for Israel. I'm not clear what it implies for Taiwan. So it will be a significant change, but it won't be all one way. And that's one of the things that makes the interplay between domestic politics and geopolitics so difficult this year. So we've touched on Ukraine, we've touched on China, we've touched on Israel and the broader Iranian threat through Hamas and all of these other proxies. And I I wondered if you could help us connect the dots. You tweeted something that I thought was really scary, but rang very true to me on New Year's Eve. Here's what you said. 
future historians will marvel at all this. It will seem obvious by 2033, if not sooner, that the Pax Americana faced a well-coordinated challenge from China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea in the early 2020s. The first move was the invasion of Ukraine. The second was the war of Iran's proxies against Israel. The third will most likely be a Chinese challenge to American primacy in the Indo-Pacific, perhaps if Xi Jinping is bold, a blockade of Taiwan. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean when you say well-coordinated? Like, how how much are they coordinating? No two world leaders have met more frequently in the last decade than Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. And I can assure you they're not discussing the respective merits of Russian and Chinese cuisine. The fact that they met immediately prior to the offensive against Ukraine that at that meeting, there was a kind of no-limits partnership declared is surely evidence enough. The fact that Iran is a major source of drones uh, for the Russian air assault on Ukraine is further evidence. The fact that the attacks on Israel were preceded not only by meetings in Tehran of the leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah, not to mention Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but also by Chinese intervention, which is in some ways quite novel in the Middle Eastern diplomacy, to bring about some kind of uh, rapprochement between the Saudis and the Iranians. All of this, I think, is part of a jigsaw that you can put together without knowing the classified information. Obviously, the people inside the government know a lot more than I do. And I'm sure Jake Sullivan, as national security advisor, has far deeper insights than I can ever have. And I think on the basis of open source intel, it's pretty clear that there is coordination. And although there is no ideological homogeneity between these regimes, China, which is still nominally Marxist-Leninist, communist regime, Russia, which is some kind of imperialist nostalgia trip back to Peter the Great, and Iran, an Islamist Shia theocracy, and they don't have anything really in common, except that they want American predominance to end. And Pax Americana, which, you know, has had its many defects, uh, hasn't been such a bad international order that one would wish it to be replaced by a Chinese version. I certainly don't want to live in that world, and I wouldn't have thought you believers in the free press would want to either. So that's really where I think I I would argue we, we are going. It's a major challenge to American predominance. The Biden administration said, we understand that better than Trump because we understand alliances, and these alliances are our superpower. And that seemed to be true with respect to Ukraine because the Western alliance, broadly defined also including Japan and some Asian countries, did come together and it supported Ukraine very strongly through that first year particularly. But I don't think that alliance will look remotely as strong if things escalate in Israel. It's already pretty fragmented on the Palestine-Palestinian-Israel question. And as for Taiwan, I don't think any Europeans will show up if there's a crisis over Taiwan. And so the Pax Americana, insofar as it was about American economic might plus alliances, I think is more vulnerable than at any time since the end of World War II. Isn't one of the other great distinctions between Cold War I and Cold War II our demoralization? Like, I'm sure you saw the videos, Neil, of the past few days, the spectacle of young progressives marching in the streets of American cities, praising the Houthis of Yemen. 
literally, to say nothing of their praise of Hamas. And back then, maybe I'm I'm yeah, have a revisionist idea of things, but it seemed like that in general, young Americans and young American liberals were on the side of the West. And it was self-evidently good that our freedoms were good and better than their lack of them. Is that a real shift or am I just looking at the past with rose-colored glasses? I think you are a bit. I mean, I think what's interesting about Cold War II is it seems to be going faster than than Cold War I. So we've kind of we're racing from the Korean War to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And when it comes to young people's attitudes, we've somehow got to 1968 uh, already. Because if you go back to 68, there's this enormous revulsion against the Pax Americana from within. And instead of chanting their support for Hamas, they were chanting their support for Ho Chi Minh right. uh, on the Harvard campus. In, a, in that sense, part and parcel of it Cold War. It was ever War. thus. Yeah, right. I mean, part and parcel of Cold War is the useful idiots that you'll always find on the Harvard campus. And in that sense, I think there's a kind of familiarity to this pattern. But I do think that it's easier, much easier for China to mobilize anti-American sentiment or anti-Israeli sentiment through social media than was ever possible in the first Cold War. And that, that means that I think our task is harder. The way I would put it is Cold War II has a lot in common with Cold War I, but Economically, the other side is much stronger than was true in Cold War I. Secondly, I think we are more divided and more capable of being divided. And in that sense, I think that there's a decent chance we'll lose Cold War II. And that's what people find really hard to visualize. The reason people are worried is they kind of think, oh, we, you know, we, we're, we're always going to win. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. And I'm like, no, you have to contemplate the possibility of losing. The United States did not inevitably win Cold War I. It looked like it was losing for most of the 1970s. By 1979, it really looked like it was in trouble. And I think we just don't get across to people what losing might be like and why it might be bad. Ukrainians understand what losing's like because they saw Butcher. They saw the bodies in the streets of Butcher. Israelis know what losing is like because they know that October 7th is like the dress rehearsal for Holocaust too. But we don't really know what losing would mean. And young Americans absolutely have no concept. In fact, young Americans are so complacent about freedom that they're basically against it now, which is a kind of bizarre turn of events. And so I kind of want everybody to read books like SSGB, Len Dayton's fantastic book. Where <laughs> he imagined Britain just losing World War II, what it would be like if the Germans had taken over. It's great because it completely captures what it would have been like. We need a bit more, what would it would actually be like if, if we lost? Suppose, just let's just imagine that there is a Taiwan crisis and they send two aircraft carrier groups and the Chinese just sink both the carriers. And the U.S. finds it has to sue for peace. And Taiwan is taken over and Xi Jinping does the ticker tape parade through Taipei. What then? What does that mean? And I think a lot of people haven't really got anywhere close to thinking that through. They don't realize that losing, ceasing to be number one, losing the Pax Americana has massive costs. Like, suppose suddenly the cost of borrowing for the United States government is no longer where it currently is. Suppose the dollar is no longer just seen as de facto the world's number one currency. All of this could make life a lot worse. Supposing the free press 
was no longer really capable of operating because of a sustained campaign against it run out of, of Beijing. These are the things that people don't spend enough time thinking about because they just complacently assume that somehow all of this stuff is going on over there in, in Ukraine and in Israel and Taiwan and somehow we'll be fine. But the reality is we will definitely not be fine any more than we would have been fine if the Soviets had won the first Cold War. Well, Neil, let's just take that cheery thought and end with... Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want you, to be uh, cheery. I want everybody to be, to be scared because unless you're properly scared, you won't take the requisite actions to avert okay, well, this kind I, of... I, I, pee, I, mean, I, I, I peed my pants during that answer. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, let's ask you one final short question, which can, you can use to scare listeners if they're not already terrified like me. Um, and that is... This is a you know 2024 predictions uh, podcast. So I want you to paint a picture of January 1, 2025, and tell me how are things looking in Cold War II? Like, what's your best guess in terms of how we're doing in a year? From well, it's now? just before Democrats storm the Capitol uh, <laughs> <laughs> in protest against the obviously stolen election. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I would say. When you're doing predictions over a 12-month time horizon, the important thing is to remember that most things won't be massively different. So Europe will still be kind of stagnating, the growth will be down, there may be a recession in parts of Europe, and the far right will be gaining ground. So that's a kind of easy prediction. And Putin will still be president of Russia, and Modi will be still prime minister because they'll, their elections are a foregone conclusion. So lots of this is kind of easy to foresee. The hard thing to foresee is, does Xi Jinping take a risk on Taiwan? Suppose he does. By this, If he does, by this time next year, we'll know if the United States was able to deter or prevent or reverse a Chinese move or whether China won. And so it will be quite, that will be the key, I think. Because I think the Ukraine war won't be over. Russia won't have won. Ukraine won't have won. Israel will still be dealing with the remnants of Hamas. It'll be either at war with Hezbollah or on the brink of it. Some of this, this is not going to change massively. And I don't think the Biden administration is radically going to change in its final year in office. So I think Taiwan is what to focus on. And I don't know if you've ever been to Taiwan. I really like Taiwan because Taiwan shows that the Chinese can do democracy really well. And they, they do market economy really well. The question is, can they do defense really well? And at this point, the answer is mm, probably not. And so there is, a, I think, a real probability that there is some kind of Taiwan Strait crisis in the coming 12 months. And on that will hinge, I think, the future of this, this Cold War that we've, we've been discussing. There's other stuff one could talk about, Labour government in Britain, but that's all chump change by comparison with that. Neil Ferguson, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks to Ollie for being here today and to all of our guests for sharing their wisdom about the year ahead. Neil Ferguson, I really do hope that you're wrong. And thanks to all of you, as always, for listening. If you want to support Honestly, there's just one way to do it. It's by going to the Free Press's website at thefp.com, T-H-E-F-P.com, and becoming a subscriber today. Happy New Year. We'll see you next time. <laughs>